I beg pardon, sir. Oh, yeah, sure. That's right. <laughs> oh, well, sir. Last night of the voyage. Yes, sir. Half an hour. Maybe less. Beg pardon, sir. Huh? Well, say, uh, bring me a drink out of here, will you? What would you like, sir? Oh, I don't know. Bring me something, uh, well, something quieting to the nerves. Quieting, sir? Yeah, uh, uh... Why don't you try stout, Mr. Dunsford? I beg your pardon? You asked for something quieting, and I prescribed stout. A double stout, sir. Yeah, all right, sure, yeah. Ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic cinema. I'm Drea Clark, and with me, as ever, are my cohorts. Kristen Lopez. And I'm Samantha Ellis. And this week, we are very excited to have a special guest with us. Joining us today, Farron Neme. Hi, welcome. It's good to be here. We are glad to have you. We're going to be talking about the motion picture Dodsworth, and I'm super excited because I think everyone could use a little um, introspective romance and a personal growth movie in their life. But if you are new to Ticklish Business, we are on our road to 100, and so this has been part of this series where we've been able to have amazing special guests like Farron. And if you haven't checked out any of the rest of them, please do. You can see more on our Patreon page and see additional bonus podcast pins. And then we'll also be having some upcoming special events as well. That's at patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. So I'd love to get started with Dotsworth and jump right in. And as ever, we generally give a little overview of our connection or background with the film. And I'd love, Farron, if you want to start us off as our special guest, please tell us about you and Dodsworth. Well, I saw the film for the first time in about 2006, and I wrote about it for my blog, Self-Styled Siren. I had never watched it to that point. I had some weird kind of misconceptions about it. First of all, it was based on a novel by Sinclair Lewis, who I had dutifully tried to read, and at that point not gotten very far with, you know, I, I, sh- I should give him another shot because he was very highly regarded in his day. But I had tried to read, I did read It Can't Happen Here, which is, you know, very sort of strident and moralizing. And I had started Main Street, didn't get very far. And so I had this notion that Dodsworth was going to have all of the faults that I've perceived at that time in Sinclair Lewis. So I sat down to watch it because it was um, it was William Wyler and I was sort of on a Wyler kick at that point. And uh, right away I was just astonished by it, how how beautiful it is, how nuanced and delicate and natural the performances are and just how much it had to say. And I think it's it's a movie that actually holds up superbly well. I mean, the, the issues and the things that it, it tackles are all still very much with us. You know? And I was, I was also watching it, I guess, at a time, you know, when I was like hitting middle age. And I mean, I, I think I would have appreciated it if I had seen it in my 20s. But when you see it, when you're, you know, around the age of some of the characters, then it, it really, the kind of deep truths that it's telling you really hit you even harder. So that's how I came to see it. Samantha, how about you? What's your background with, with Dodsworth? This is actually my first time seeing the film. 
it's been on my watch list for ages. And the first time I ever heard about this movie was in relation to it being Robert Osborne's favorite film. So I had, you know, sort of built it up in my mind a little bit. Like, oh, I have to watch it at some point, but it just never happened. And then my other connection to this film was watching the recent Mary Astor documentary talking about her and her time making this film and how much she struggled during the film's production when she was going through her divorce, talking about, you know, the, the scandalous Purple Diaries in connection with her. So I actually didn't really know anything about this film going into it, just sort of the mystique around it, so to speak. But but I definitely did enjoy it. And I agree, the performances are really natural. And I'll also throw out, this is my first Ruth Chatterton film, and she's really brilliant in it in particular. So, so yeah, I was really excited to discover this one for the first time. Yeah, we'll definitely have to dig into Ruth Chatterton and her character more. I'm uh, just on my, to piggyback on Samantha, this was also my first time watching Godsworth. I don't know how it sort of filtered through the cracks, but you know, there's a lot of movies and I may watch a lot of them, but I'm also not watching all of them. And it was such a pleasant surprise for many of the reasons Farron mentioned the relatability to this age was phenomenal. The one big difference that I'm sure we can talk about is how I think a self-made uh, billionaire or millionaire would actually behave. Probably nowhere near as wonderfully lovely as the Houston character did. But those are just my own thoughts on uh, men of finance. So Kristen, how about you? Yeah, for me, this was uh, also first time watch. I was fortunate to get a copy of the new Blu-ray that Warner Archive has recently put out. And I watched it both to, to finally watch that Blu-ray and for this. So this was really a first time thing. And the bar had been set very high, as Samantha had mentioned, by this being Robert Osborne's favorite movie of all time. And it also holds a lot of high quality for me because it's directed by William Wyler. And Wyler's made I would say more successes than failures over his career. And I usually like almost everything he's ever made. And this was no exception. I think that for me, especially Dodsworth is commonly cited as one of the few quote unquote adult films to exist. And I don't mean adult as in pornographic, but in just the concept of its themes and the element of having adult people talking about issues that are not necessarily exciting or bombastic, but are just human. It's a very small scale story, aside from the kind of globe hopping that they do throughout the whole movie. And it's a film where there's not necessarily a good villain or a bad a, a good person or a villain, as was very common, especially in the 1930s, when the code was just slowly starting to be adapted and all villainy had to be punished, as we've seen, in any way, shape, or form. And this is a film, we can talk about the endings, because we don't want to give out spoilers in the first 10 minutes, but this is a film where that doesn't necessarily happen. These people are just flawed. They're not good or bad. They are just human, and the issues that they experience are common they're relatable i totally agree i think i would love if we could all i've wanted to since i've seen this is talk about all of the nuances in this relationship if um for anyone who hasn't seen dodsworth it's it begins on like the final day of this man of industry who's started this car this motor company 
Dodsworth Motor from the ground up and made a tremendous success of it, made millions of dollars and has now sold the company and is going to retire at a relatively young age. And so he can finally spend time with his wife and his wife and they have a a grown daughter who's just gotten married. And so he and the wife are going to go on like a 20 year delayed honeymoon of their own to Europe and see the sites and finally take advantage of some of this wealth they've amassed. And they go and in this time together, discover how different they are in a way that you couldn't when you're locked into this, even the rich person mundaneness of real life. And I thought, I totally agree with Kristen that there's not a villain of this piece because even the, you know, as sympathetic as the husband is, um, as Dodsworth himself is, you, to me anyway, I was so, and I'd love to hear Farron get into this, she alluded to it a bit. I was so connected to Ruth Chatterton's character of the wife of the small bits that are dropped along the way that how dedicated she was to providing like a solid domestic base for him that she had supported him through all of these years of growing this company of doing these things like she had been a good person she had fulfilled these archetypal wifely roles and duties and now with this breath of freedom like something not many women even women with money would have access to this kind of travel or living this kind of life and she just wanted to breathe and have fun and I couldn't really begrudge her that anyway and then and so how they deal with that was fascinatingly modern to me. Farron, you had mentioned some uh, either adjusted relatability in in seeing these middle-aged protagonists and uh, connection yourself. What was it that really struck you about their relationship or about Ruth Chatterton's character? Well, I mean, I think she, you, you really see her develop, you know, may, maybe not necessarily in an entirely good way. But um, when I read about it, it was originally a, a play on Broadway. And one of the things that William Wyler did um, that was very important was he wanted to make um, the character of Fran l- less, uh, he wanted to make her more sympathetic, especially in the beginning. He told Sidney Howard when he was writing the screenplay, she's got a very good case for behaving the way she, she does. She's been a very good wife. And she tells him, you know, you're simply rushing at old age, Sam, you know, and and I I don't want to do that. So, you know, she wants to have some fun before what she clearly fears, you know, this like grandmotherly old age comes down on her and, you know, makes it impossible, at least in her mind, to flirt or, you know, or dance or, or have that kind of a good time. So Weiler persuaded Sidney Howard to, to soften up her character. And I think you see that very much in the early scenes. But he had a hard time with Ruth Chatterton, who was 44 at the time. I actually looked this up. In the novel, Fran is 41 at the beginning. That's all. And Sam Dodsworth is 50. So Ruth was, you know, maybe a little bit older than the character. And she just wanted to play her as sort of a straight out bitch, which Mary Astor later speculated was because the character hit a nerve. You know, she's trying to hold on to youth. That was what Ruth, as any professional leading actress would, also wanted 
to hold on to you. She had doubts about whether she should even take the part. You know, it's like in Hollywood, once you play the mother of an adult child, that's a huge landmark. It's like saying, okay, this is the type of part I'm going to play from now on. Chatterton was by no means eager to embrace that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that despite the fact that Chatterton and Weiler had these epic battles on set, she slapped his face at one point. I think in the end, I, to me, he got his way. You know, she's... I, I really feel for Fran through most of this movie. Even at times when she's at her worst, I feel for her. There's a, an, a marvelous scene kind of later on in the movie when Sam tells her she's going to be a grandmother. And you see at first she's so happy and excited and she wants to call her daughter. And then all of a sudden something Sam says makes the penny drop and she realizes this is it. She's a grandmother. He uses the word grandmother. Yeah, exactly. yeah. When he says that she's that their daughter's pregnant, she's ecstatic. And the second he uses the word grandmother, it like a just a switch goes off. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an it's an amazing moment in her performance too, because that's like a pretty big transition, and she does it just with beautiful smoothness. You can see the thoughts go across her. Face, you know, as she's having them. It's it's really amazing. I completely agree. I think it's really interesting and it makes this movie so real and so relatable too because there's both good and bad on both sides with both characters. You know, there are scenes where Sam's trying to drag Fran back to America. She doesn't want to go. And he looks like the bad guy, you know? So it's it's really brilliant how they're able to show this complicated of a relationship. And I think it's it's definitely realistic. Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, this is a story and we haven't necessarily given away too much of the plot because there isn't a whole heck of a lot of, of plot in the sense of forward momentum and, and things that are really big that happen. Big things do happen, but they're not the adventurous sense. I mean, we're introduced to this couple uh, as having been married for so long and there's this mutual love for each other. I mean, Sam and Fran, even though they are meant to be older characters, are still just as amorous and loving to each other as as anyone else. Age isn't necessarily a factor in the beginning of this movie when he's retired. You know, this is the 1930s. He could have retired at 40, for all we know. He's just that much of a wunderkind. And they're going to travel. They're going to do all this stuff together and finally, finally have the time to not worry about money and to spend time with each other. And I think the painful... Greek tragedy almost of this movie is that as they spend more time together, they realize that work has really just been a way for them to push away the fact that they don't have the same values anymore. They don't believe in the same things. They are different people. And as various characters come into their lives, whether that's Edith Courtright, played by Mary Astor, or David Nivens, kind of Captain Locker, CAD type of character. These aren't necessarily people that they're seeking. These are people that are just entering their lives. And it's almost like this faded element to their relationship that maybe the saddest element of it is that they are no longer meant to be together. Maybe they never were. And I think that the, the Ruth Chatterton character, Fran especially, kind of get little glimpses of the fact that it's 1936, Women didn't have the same abilities to 
say no to marriage and that their relationship was one thing when they got married. And now that there is this ability for women to be more independent, she's seeing this other side of life that maybe the decision she made as a young person, she might not have made anymore. And I think that that's something that we don't see as even in relationship dramas in, in modern day, there's always this big thing. And I say that with like capital B, capital T, big thing that happens that pushes characters apart. And Dodsworth's whole thing is just saying, no, maybe people just fall out of love and it doesn't have to be a Blue Valentine-esque screaming match for two hours. It's just this sad drifting apart, drifting to other people and realizing that you're just waiting for somebody to pull the pin. That's such a good point. The, the, the dichotomy of it being this film that is about a very intimate relationship that it's not there's not a divorce at the beginning they're they're so they are so happy together for the first third of this like they have their rapport and they're delighted and they're just like cheerful people that you enjoy and having it be just these fundamental differences versus oh this is our reaction to some tragedy is what is thrusting us apart was nice because we've seen you know cinema has a long history that could continues to last year's Oscar nominated marriage story of liking to dig into relationships. And I was surprised with how low key this one was. I love that you brought up David Nivens, who was playing one of the most David Nivens of characters. Like they were just, oh, can you just come on to set in whatever you're wearing? Cause it's probably a coat and tail. Like he, I love David Nivens and he's just such a ridiculous presence in this. But the other thing to get into that is sort of a catalyst from there is the idea of infidelity in this was also had a very modern sensibility to me because I was not around in the 30s. Maybe this was happening all the time. So Fran goes and she wants to dance and she wants to what? And it starts with the Nivens character. They're on this cruise ship on their way to the continent. They're going to Europe and he will dance with her and her husband just wants to be out like looking at stars or looking for like lighthouse lights or whatever. And the slow segue between her getting attention from men to her wanting more and then how they navigate that also seemed so forward to me of, okay, well, this makes you happy. So I'm just going to sort of <laughs> let you have your tour guide. And it was so, it's like, all right, okay. Well, I also noticed the gendering too of the concept of retirement. He has made his money. He's made his legacy. He's made a success for himself. And now he's more than willing to open up and embrace being an old man, quote unquote, and retiring. She, Fran, who is not, she's made things. Obviously, they, they have a home, they have a life, they have a daughter together. She's made a family, but none of those things are implied were necessarily her decision. That's really more of societal expectation than anything. And so for her, the concept of old age and retirement is equated with death and being unattractive and having a life that's unfun. She wants to go on boats and she wants to go hang out in the fine nightclubs and he just wants to sit and look at lighthouse light. But I think at the same time, without saying anything, it's reminding us that, yes, but at the same time, Sam can enjoy the fruits of his labor because he's had that ability to go out into the world and do what he's always wanted. There's a privilege to that, that 
I think is really fascinating. And, and Farron, I don't know if, if you can give us more information on this, but I know Weiler really changed a lot of things because he wanted to make sure that none of the characters came off as particularly one note. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it was particularly a concern with Fran, but, you know, I mean, I think he, he wanted to establish that this was a, a real loving marriage at first and that it's it's being driven apart, you know, not because of one person's flawed character, but because of their different goals, their different perceptions and their their different fears, Right. You know, at the, at the very beginning, Fran tells Sam, you know, like I've, I've been here, you know, I've done all of these dinner parties and all of my days are sort of the same. I do the grocery shopping and the meal planning and I'm tired of it. I'm ready to, to go to Europe and see some of life. She sort of implies that she's hoping to absorb culture and, and sophistication and elegance. But then, of course, when we get there, we see that Sam is far more interested in the history and culture and business angles of Europe than Fran is. What Fran really wants is people. She wants more interesting people than the ones that she's been with. And so she pursues that. But what is is sort of sad about Fran is that she doesn't have very good radar. She doesn't have a very good notion of like, who are the quality people to pursue, right? She's much more interested in like Iselin, played by Paul Lucas, who's a pretty obvious fortune hunter. And this Countess, who it turns out is getting a commission on all of the fancy couture gowns that she buys, uh, than she is in Mary Astor's Edith Courtright, who is, you know, a possible companion for her too at the beginning of the movie. She's somebody Fran probably could have struck up a, a friendship with, but she's not glamorous, she's not glitzy, she's not exciting. That's what we see Fran wanting. On the movie-making side of it, I realized I brought up a dichotomy and then I only mentioned one half of it, which is just how I like to keep people on their toes. But on the movie-making side of this, I think that this movie is such a great split of being this intimate relationship that we're talking about. And it's so, so beautiful to look at. It has these gorgeous sets of all these things and it manages to be a movie about this, uh, largely this couple that's traveling across Europe and all these fabulous places that that's set on a soundstage. Like there's all these beautiful hotel rooms and beautiful, it's, it's just such a nice thing for me. Oh, I looked at it like, oh, how could I shoot this now? Because you really managed that budget, except for they didn't because their sets were so gorgeous. But within that, the direction in these beautiful things is what really brings this to fruition. I think that this... Obviously, the script and the care given to the shape of the story. But this is a film where you can see a director's touch so strongly. And one of the moments or pair of moments that stood out to me was when 
they are first on their vacation and they've come back after they've had this sort of party and they're in the midst. They're meeting the people and they're in their beautiful, uh, there's some really beautiful dresses in this and they're in their beautiful garments and the, it's the two of them changing and they're, it's such a relatable marriage scene. She asks him, oh, can you unzip me? And then they're getting undressed around each other and in a way that I was like, oh man, this is framed so much. Like you start to see her bare back and like he takes off his whole suit and puts his pajamas on and there's just such a comfortable familiarity between them like you are like yes this is a couple who has been undressing near each other and married for so so long and then later on the the sort of mirror of that is when he comes back to rejoin her in Europe and he's going to bring it all back together get their marriage back on track and the hotel she's rented has two bedrooms and she's in a separate bedroom than him. And he knocks at the door, he, she opens it, but whatever, she's changing and she throws like a sheet or something in front of her as if he's a total stranger. And just the motion of that, like the handling of elements like that to indicate where they are mentally and emotionally beyond just the dialogue. Those are the touches that I love so much that in the right hands can make something like that we talk about that this, the nuance of it, that's how it comes across. And I think Weiler is so gifted at, at that and at, at building moments that have all of these details to them, like burning this letter and having it kind of filter across the, the patio. Was what are the what were there any standouts for you guys in this one of oh that was just so nicely done, even if it was just a small insight. I think I mean it's kind of a major part of the film, but not not to throw out the spoilers now, but really my favorite moment of the film, the real standout part is the speech sort of that Sam gives when he finally breaks things off with Fran. I think that part like just shook me a little bit, honestly. It was just so brilliantly done. And of course, the one line that everybody quotes and everybody remembers, because it's so brilliant, you know, there, there has to be some point of love just short of suicide. It's like, oh, I, I, the second I heard that, I was like, wow, that is so profound. And really, I, I haven't really pointed out Walter Houston in this film. He's just so, so good. And, and it's so jarring. I don't know if anybody else has this experience. The first Walter Houston film I saw was Treasure the Sierra Madre. <laughs> so seeing him yeah, in well, something well, like this. That was mine first, too. Yeah, not, not much like this at all. <laughs> right? It's like, it's night and day. I mean, the only other film other than those two that I've seen him in is always in my heart. So it's like a little bit of a transition because he's still like a kind of a roaming free guy and always in my heart. And then now he's like, you know, a little more uptight billionaire dude. So it's, it's definitely, it's jarring. It's a bit of a shock, <laughs> but he's, he's just so good in this film. And, and that part is the part that stood out to me the most. I don't know about you guys. Well, he, he had honed it a lot through playing it on Broadway. So I guess uh, out of all of the actors, Weiler gave him the least direction. Weiler was famous for doing take after take after take, which was one of the things that drove Ruth Chatterton out of her gourd. David Niven like almost had a nervous breakdown as well. But he did not do that with Walter Houston simply because he, he didn't need to. <laughs> you know, um, Houston was already at such a point with this character, he knew him. So 
clearly and, and, and perfectly that there was no need. And yeah, I think I think he's really he's really wonderful. I mean, it, it's we were talking about I think Drea was bringing up whether or not this is a, a realistic portrait of, of an American industrialist. I mean, I would say that there have been some over the years who, like, once they make their money and retire, want to do bigger and better things with it, right? Or, or genuinely want to, I don't know, go live on a mountaintop or build Carnegie Hall or, or whatever. <laughs> but at, at the same time, I've worked in business journalism for many years, and Dodsworth was not a common type. But I think it, it works because of Houston's performance, and it works because you can see the character evolve, right? You see his curiosity right away on the boat, where he's like, let's go out and look for this lighthouse. He's already really excited, much more so than I think he expected to be, about actually seeing these other countries and finding out other things about it. So that curiosity turns out to be his most endearing quality. And it's it's kind of what saves him. You know, because otherwise, if he didn't have that, he might just be at home in the apartment, like wondering where things went wrong with Fran, right? So. Well, it's interesting too, for me, I think my first Walter Houston movie was, oh gosh, what is it? The Devil and Daniel Webster, where he's playing Satan, which again is a very different role for him. And he's really good in it. And that's the thing is that there's this playfulness and this manipulativeness to him. And that's not necessarily shown here, but outside of maybe a similar playfulness, more of a romantic playfulness. But I mean, I definitely think there are moments where you feel that both him and Fran are really kind of toying with each other, that he brings up stuff like the grandmother bit, you know, things where he's, he is playing on the fact, whether intentionally or not, that she is aging. You know, I think one of the quotes to Fran is, have you thought how little happiness there can be for the old wife of a young husband? And this element of the two of them saying the wrong things to each other, whether that's intentional or not. But then once Mary Astor's character shows up as as Edith, you really get to see the true breadth of two really great performers coming together because Walter Houston has this poise and this elegance that's matched scene for scene by Mary Astor. And at the same time, there's this blending of the relationship and this playfulness that's different. I mean, everything about their interactions is different than his interactions with Fran before and after they start to drift apart. So that by the end, there hasn't been these grand romantic scenes of, you know, the wind blowing and, and characters mashing their faces together. But at the end, that final scene with Mary Astor at the, the ledge, you get all that love that the two of them have shown for each other. And I do applaud that this is one of the only movies I can remember where a character can leave his marriage. The movie ends with him saying, like, I'm going to file for a divorce, but they ain't filed it yet. But that's okay, because they're totes going to. So it's okay for him to be with Mary Astor because he's totally going to get a divorce, which I thought was very funny to see if you know, like, how the code freaked out about stuff like that. Yeah, I think this was on record as being the first example of some, uh, and especially with him, like, a man who wasn't punished for leaving his marriage. I'm glad you brought up Mary Astor because as Samantha said at the very beginning, this was filmed while she was going through this very 
public trial that involved infidelity on her side and with this whole diary and salacious nonsense attached to it. And so for me, when this started and when we first meet Mary Astor and I'm like, oh, well, clearly if there's going to be a love interest for Dodsworth, it's going to be this woman. And what a strange choice for Mary Astor to make to play a character who is maybe pursuing a married man. And then through the shape of it, it was this, oh, what a low key it was a redemption arc for her. Like she did get to be in this like selfless, you know, she was someone who was doing really right by this person in, in this very sincere way. And I thought that was amazing that she, <laughs> who knows? I mean, we know how heavily invested the behind the scenes often are, but I found it a really unique redemption arc for a character and an actress playing that to be like, but, Look at the sympathetic side of it. Did that stand out to any of you, or was I just like? Well, she said um, la- later that that playing Edith Courtright had helped keep her sane during this whole thing because she was literally going back and forth between the set and the trial. At one point, the judge had agreed because of her day job to have like the the trial at night, so she would leave and she would go hear all of this. It was a custody battle over her daughter, so the emotional stakes at night were very high for her. A lot of what her husband's attorney was saying about the diary apparently, you know, may not have even been true. They, her husband had stolen the diary from her and was like releasing what they claimed were excerpts, but who knows? And we'll never know because the diary itself was burned. She always said it wasn't nearly as bad as they said in the papers. But anyway, she said, you know, so she would be with Edith Courtright and the the dignity and the elegance of the character would kind of carry over to when she was in court. She said, in court, I would put on my white gloves. I would sit up a little straighter like Edith and it, it helped. It helped keep her mentally in line. And, you know, I mean, of course, this kind of thing really have destroyed her career. But Samuel Goldwyn, the producer, to his everlasting credit, when they went to him and said, OK, what are you going to do? Are you going to exercise your morals clause here and replace her? And he thought about it. And he said, a woman fighting to keep her child? This is good. And that was it. (laughs) He wasn't going to fire her. And it yeah, it's it's a it's a lovely performance. She's so beautiful. She's so cool, and yet she's not obnoxiously perfect. It there's a, there's a beating heart to this woman, at least in my eyes. Yeah, I definitely think I think there's also part in the the trials of Mary Astor documentary where they say that she was essentially playing Edith Courtright on the stand to at least kind of have this false sense of confidence that she did not feel having to go up against her husband, which shout out to the trials of Mary Astor. If you've not seen it, it's a great companion piece to this movie in that it talks about the struggles that she was going for, not only in her life with this diary and her husband and being a sexual woman, but the issues that she had after that, particularly with the daughter that she had fought so heavily to keep. So it might surprise many people to know that there was very little bonding after that, which is very typical as we've come to find out with classic film actresses who had children. But I think here, 
it really does, I think, not exacerbate, but it emphasizes the power of Dodsworth, especially that Fran character, because much like Mary Astor's real life, Fran could easily have been demonized and excoriated and slut-shamed for the things that she does. You know, she doesn't lead David Niven's character on per se, but she doesn't exactly tell him no. You know, she's openly consorting with men at a certain point, and the audience is not sure if there's a sexual component to that or not, but it's obviously inappropriate and scandalous considering that she's married. And a lot of that stuff was certainly lobbed at Mary Astor off screen for her own life. So I think watching Fran get this ability to be like, okay, my marriage is going to end, but it's not the end of me. You know, I'm not going to be hit with a bolt of lightning because I've decided to be this wanton woman. The film doesn't unnecessarily demonize her and say, you know, look at what you've done to this poor broken man played by Walter Houston. You know, none of these characters are broken by the end of it. They just don't get along. And again, I cannot stress for 1936, that just seems so shocking. That's that itself seems scandalous. One of the things I love about Ruth Chatterton's performance is the way Fran goes from having like a, a fairly normal like American accent to suddenly going like straight up mid-Atlantic once she starts meeting the Europeans. And then, of course, like a, a little further on from that, her hair lightens, she goes blonde, and the the costume designer, Omar Kiam, uh, also gives her like much lighter, fluffier, you know, the more she's trying to be youthful, the more he puts her in chiffon and silver and stuff. Whereas, you know, she starts out dressed pretty sensibly, but that kind of shifts as the movie wears on. It's just another thing I take delight in when I see it. My, my general blanket statement of this film is I find it so smart that there's no clear villain. I think that's sort of the genius of this movie. And, and it, it's one of those movies that could easily be made today, just with a couple of of adjustments. And I also wanted to point out too, as far as like behind the scenes and everything goes, uh, talking about The Trials of Mary Astor, which again, I, I would also recommend, it's brilliant. That movie made me want to watch this film. There are quite a few clips from this movie. They really go in depth talking about the making of this film. And, and it's just really brilliant. If I had to honestly say any gripes about this movie, I don't think there was enough Mary Astor. I don't know about you guys. I feel like there, considering how much I had heard about Mary Astor in relation to this film, and considering how much I loved her scenes, like she's, I feel like she's a much more natural foil to Fran. Like her, her scenes, she's very effortless, very, she has a lot of natural beauty. And, and I would also go as far as saying this is the prettiest I've seen Mary Astor in a film. Like I've seen her in the Maltese Falcon, I've seen her in Dust, and, and she's just gorgeous in this. But I would have loved to see a lot more of a relationship develop between Edith and Sam. I would have loved to see, I mean, it's really only in the third act that we see them together romantically at all. I would have loved to see a, more of a buildup, and it would have made the ending much more satisfying. I don't know about you guys. I definitely think people would be surprised to realize that I think it takes, what, the first half hour or so for Mary Astor to make her appearance. And then, yeah, she really is parceled out. It didn't bother me. 
But I, I definitely think it is immediately surprising to start. I did start to wonder at a certain point, like Mary Astor's in this movie, right? Well, that's part of the reason that she remains as sympathetic as she does because she's not conniving. It is absolute happenstance when they reconnect. Um, Samantha, it's interesting that you said you thought she looked so good in this because I thought it was the least flattering haircut and style I've ever seen. And I was like, how did they make Mary Astor look homely? Ah, uh, that's fun. And so I actually thought it was a character choice of, oh, she's meant to look more sort of elegant than she is beautiful. Um... But good for her. Good for this elegant, not-so-beautiful woman. I mean, she's Mary Astor's soul. She's still working with plenty. But I think that the shaping of their relationship, yes, it is It is very low-key, but that's kind of what allows the sympathy for it to still be on her side. There's not a lot of conniving, and then there's not... Whereas Fran is very clearly overstepping the bounds of marriage and like pushing against what the definitions are and then just being fully unfaithful, Dodsworth gets to retain that because until the point, even even when he's literally living with this woman at the end and has only been there for how many weeks, but it's like, oh, is he just like sleeping in a different part of the villa and waking up and fishing? Do you know what I mean? It's it's not super... I uh, see what you're saying. It's, it's definitely more innocent on their side, which gives them more uh, sympathy, just like you're saying, yeah. Plausible deniability is what they'd <laughs> call it in court, yeah. Exactly. I'm very surprised this movie has not been remade numerous times. In fact, it was considered to be remade in the 50s with Gregory Peck as Dodsworth, Elizabeth Taylor as Fran, and Grace Kelly as Edith, with a Julius J. Epstein uh, adaptation. They couldn't get all three of the actors scheduled at the same time, so they had to move on. And I'm actually very thankful for that. I was going to say, Elizabeth Taylor in the 50s, she was young and gorgeous. That's completely wrong casting for Fran right off the bat. So, and I love Elizabeth Taylor. But it, what, one thing that I really wanted to do when I came on here was ask you three a question, because it was something that sort of struck me. The set, you know, This was the second time I watched it. Court, the, uh, I, I can't even imitate the way <laughs> Ruth Chatterton pronounces his name. She like, She's trying to do it very Germanically. Kurt, the Viennese count, the very young blonde that she almost marries. Do, do you perceive him as genuinely being in love with Fran or not? Because to me, there's no question that Paul Lucas's character, um, Isolin, is using her in, in a sense. I, I, I feel like he may even be taking money from her, but... With Kurt, I'm not so sure. He certainly gives a good imitation of being in love with her. That's hilarious that you pointed out his name because I thought it was Court. I didn't realize she was doing a whole accent, and that's even funnier. I would say, for me, I think that the saddest element of Fran's life is that those questions always have to be asked. I think every man she meets is an opportunist in some way. And yeah, I definitely saw that there wasn't necessarily anything that felt particularly genuine because I still think that she, her character is trying to find out what she wants and it's just kind of going from guy to guy and still doesn't know what love is. So yeah, I definitely feel like there's still that element of 
the fact that she hasn't settled on somebody that really cares about her. And I don't think she necessarily knows what that itself is. did think, and maybe I'm naive, but I actually felt that how it came across that his affection for her seemed genuine. And even the idea of bringing in his horrifying mother who ended up shutting it down, in his portrayal, he seemed earnest in his thought of like, but this woman's so lovely. She's going to win you over. Like she won me over in his whole thing of, well, we'll try again next year. And that he seemed to want to sustain. And and yes, there's definitely, of course, that because they've said like she has more money and all of that, the power dynamic is switched. But we've seen that power dynamic switched in gender reversal so many times and not always questioned if the woman was genuine in her love and affection. The Vita, the Vita conundrum from yes. uh, Mildred Pierce. Yeah, I might... Yes, the Vita conundrum. I, I don't know. I, I might be kidding myself, but I thought I thought Court, I don't know what this Kurt was up to, but I thought Court was definitely, had some genuine love for her. I do want to throw out really quickly, if we're talking about weird names that are pronounced multiple different ways in a movie, I'm watching Joan Crawford and Robert Montgomery and No More Ladies. Her character's name is spelled Marcia, but everybody keeps calling her at different times Marcia or Marcia. I don't know what her name is, so I'm just going to call her both. So old movies, I love how certain names, you think they're said one way, said some entirely different pronunciation. Uh, Sam, continue. Well, uh, jumping on the on the pronunciation thing real quick before I answer the question, I think that adds to her almost false adoption of the culture. Like, I think that's part of the character, She's overpronouncing everything everywhere she goes to kind of fit in. Yeah, de- de- definitely, de- definitely. I mean, because like I can't, I can't remember. I think, I think it's um Walter Houston who just bluntly calls him Kurt at one point, and you realize mm-hmm. that you know that's a, he's got a perfectly ordinary name that she's been making sound very like. It's like those college students who go to Mexico and like overpronounce all the food names like burrito and all that. Anyway, so to answer the question, I actually think it's a little bit of both. And I'll explain why. I think you definitely see Kurt, he has that affection for her, but I also think that he's going after her maybe a little bit harder and more intensely than he normally would because of her money and because he sees that that would benefit his family. But then the mother disapproves and he still is interested because of his affection for her that he's built and because of the financial aspect. Like He sees that it could still work out, but he hasn't even heard his mother's argument really he wasn't in the room at the time so maybe he would think differently if he really had heard what his mother had to say yeah marina uspinskaya there's a pronunciation challenge and i'm not sure i just was up to it or not but anyway that's my attempt at it maria uspinskaya um she got a, a oscar nomination for this incredibly brief Part. And I always thought that, you know, it, it's basically like her delivery of that one line that Kristen cited earlier, you know, have you thought how little happiness there can be for the old wife of a young man? And the way she punches old 
on that line, it's it's really something. And it, it's such a great scene between her and Ruth Chatterton. They were both really renowned stage actors. So if I could see one scene filmed, I think I might pick that one. Oh, the other thing I was going to point out about Kurt. Wait, I, what, what do you think of, do you think that he was a genuine in his love? I, you know, I think I'm, I'm kind of with Samantha. I think that, you know, I think that he was genuinely fond of her, genuinely attracted to her. I think the actor whose name I, I don't have in front of me right now is definitely playing it as he's almost kind of puppyishly devoted to her. But I, I, I don't think he would be that way without her money right? <laughs> if she were the, the same woman, but, you know, just like, um, I don't know, a school teacher, I, I don't think we'd be talking about this relationship. So the, the other thing I just, that I, I noticed this second time was uh, William Wyler has a cameo in this movie at, at like 102. Somebody had to point it out to me, but he's, um, he's dead center as one of the violin players when they're waltzing in Vienna. So it's, uh, it's it's really charming. And like once you see it, it's like it's not subtle. It's like he's right there. I will throw out Gregory Gay was the actor who played Kurt, in case anybody's curious about it. But it's it's funny you bring up uh, Maria Ospinskaya. I'm assuming that's, again, we are could be completely wrong with pronunciation. But this was one of only two Academy Award nominations she ever received. And the second one, the last one was two years later for Love Affair, playing a similar, I'm, I, I'm believing, small role that was lifted for Fair to Remember a couple years later. But this movie only won an Academy Award for Best Art Direction, although it was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role for Walter Houston, for the Best Supporting Actress, as we already mentioned, Director, screenwriting and sound which i'm kind of shocked that it was it lost on all of those nominations does anybody want to hazard a guess at what won best picture over dogsworth that year this is 36 i'm so terrible at these i don't know why i just like raised my hand no i'm putting my hand down i'm terrible was it the great was it the great signal Oh, hold on, I have to yell at people to move away from the room because they were talking. So, anywho, uh, what were you saying, Sam? Uh, I believe Farron and I both said The Great Ziegfeld. And you would be correct. The Great Ziegfeld was the winner. There were several nominees that year. Like, a lot of nominees. Two, four, six, eight, ten. I'm pretty sure every movie that came out in 1936 was nominated in 1937. So, so yes, it was The Great Ziegfeld. If anybody wanted, wants to know who beat Walter Houston for Best Actor. Does anybody want to hazard a guess there? Who is nominated? Uh, other nominees, before I get to the winner, uh, other than Walter Houston, was William Powell for My Man Godfrey, Spencer Tracy for San Francisco, Gary Cooper for Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and the winner was Paul Muni for The Story of Louis Pasteur. I mean, that makes sense. I would have given it to William Powell. <laughs> I think anybody else would have given it to William Powell. Paul Muni gets a bad, I don't know. I haven't seen enough Paul Muni films to say whether I dislike him or not, but I feel like there's already kind of a built-in dislike for Paul Muni because he won so many things. <laughs> <laughs> I'm biased, though. I'm, I'm a William Powell ho. <laughs> 
um, it's going to be hard to top that, but any final thoughts on Dodsworth? I would say if you have an opportunity to get the Warner Archive Blu-ray, not to shamelessly plug for Warner Archive, who sends me things, but their Blu-ray, it's really beautiful. It's a, a gorgeous transfer, whether you watch it on a computer or whether you watch it on your TV. It's bright. It's crystal clear. I mean, it is just a lovely restoration. So if you were unable to see it this year at TCM Classic Film Festival, as we all were, I think it was scheduled to play there, then the best way to make up for that is by getting the Warner Archive Blue. But I really enjoyed seeing this. I can see why it was Bob Osborne's favorite film. I definitely, I don't want to say I expected more per se with it being Robert Osborne's favorite film, but it's it's one of those things that's a little too realistic for me. Like I prefer escapism, especially in this era. Like at the same time, you've got like my men Godfrey, which is so like ridiculous and glitzy and glamorous and kind of airheaded, but I still think it's really brilliant. I think it's absolutely worth watching. It made me want to watch way more Ruth Chatterton films. Like, I'm going to go gobble up her filmography now. And same with, it's just a wonderful cast, and they're all very natural, and it's definitely worth seeing. Yeah, I'd agree. This was such, it was such a pleasant, it wasn't an escapism, but it also wasn't a plate full of broccoli. Do you know what I mean? This wasn't like, oh, God, I better watch these dramatic classics. It was thoughtful and immersive. And like I said, there's still so much beautiful stuff to look at. Anything that has a lot of pretty dresses is already up in my book. Baron, any last words on this movie? Well, I, I guess I guess I better say something good since I I, I picked it, <laughs> but uh, but I yeah I mean I I think too that it it's also just a really beautiful to to look at movie which you know is is why you know even though I understand what Samantha is saying about escapism and in fact My Man Godfrey is one of my favorite escapist movies but this movie like still swept me up or whatever I think in in part because it's it's so beautiful to look at. We hadn't talked about Rudolph Matei, the the cinematographer or whatever, but there are there are certain shots in here that sort of prefigure deep focus as it was going to come into use just a, a few years later. The way they're balanced, that opening shot, the first time I saw this, I was like, oh, this is going to be good. When it pulls into him leaning against the window, looking at the enormous Dodsworth sign on his last day, were. It's such a gorgeous shot. And then the rest of the movie, without being flashy, really does live up to that. Yeah, I think I think it's it's just a, a, a wonderful movie. Definitely not a plate full of broccoli. <laughs> Highly recommend. <laughs> so. Sorry, all, all apologies to platefuls of broccoli everywhere. Um, <laughs> it depends how it's seasoned, right? That's true, that's true. I've enjoyed a broccoli or two. Cheese um, is always helpful on broccoli. Yeah, so, right. there you go. <laughs> Much like movies where cheese can also be helpful. That's why you bring in David Nivens. Yeah. Farron, thank you so much for joining us today. This was great and for suggesting this film that I think is the first time it, of movies been t- new to all three of us. So, and that you did it with a movie that we all love. I mean, kudos to you. Can you tell us about what you're working on, where people can find you online and support you and your work? 
Uh, let's see. What what have I been doing lately? Well, um, I, I'm speaking of Mildred Pierce. I did um, I did a long piece about Zachary Scott for Noir City Magazine, which um, I'll plug for because uh, if you um, it's subscription only, but it donation to the Film Noir Foundation, Eddie Muller's organization that does a lot of good restoration and film preservation work, will get you this very nice online magazine. And yes, it has like some very good stuff in it, including my Zachary Scott piece, which I had a, a great time writing about. I guess the, the last thing that I did was uh, right before shutdown. We got it just in the nick of time at the end of February. I fulfilled a lifelong dream and interviewed Martin Scorsese for an extra on the Scorsese shorts thing for Criterion. So that was really great as well. I'm not really sure what the the future holds. I'm working on a couple of things, but if you follow me at Self Styled Siren on Twitter, you can keep up with what I'm doing and what I will be doing. Thank you so much for inviting me. I had a great time talking with like such knowledgeable, fun women. We try. I do also want to throw out, following Farron is kind of a must if you're a classic film fan, because she also does a lot of work with the Criterion Collection and so many awesome recommendations that if you aren't sure what's on Criterion Collection streaming service at a given time, Farron is always a good resource. So I, I hype her Twitter just for that. So yeah. But, but thank you so much for, for jumping in with us. And you are always welcome to come back and talk about escapism or serious films or seasoned broccoli. We're all for that. That closes out this edition of Ticklish Business. You can find the podcast on Twitter at ticklish underscore biz. For me, Drea Clark, you can find me on Twitter at the Drea Clark. And I also co-host a modern movie podcast called Who Shot Ya, Ladies. So, Kristen, let's start with you. How can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. And I also occasionally blog, and by occasionally, I mean maybe a couple times a week, at journeysandclassicfilm.com. Samantha? You can find my blog at musingsofaclassicfilmatic.com. Haven't posted in a while, but I'll get back to it eventually. <laughs> you can find my Cooking with the Stars posts every month at ClassicMovieHub.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at ClassicFilmGeek. Excellent. So many ways to find us and read us or listen to us or whatever us. So again, I'd recommend checking out our Patreon and supporting us if you've enjoyed any of our episodes, including this one or any in the series of The Road to 100. We have been doing this for a minute now, that I th- and I think it surprises all of us, but we're very proud and we'd love the support. So yes, we are on Patreon if you would like to be a listener and a supporter. Um, I do want to throw out too on Patreon in case people need more incentive of what's available. We have our double features coming back doing upcoming episode on the three different versions of House of Wax which should be really interesting. William Bibiani and I do based on a true podcast. We just did our Liz and Dick episode. We're also prepping an episode on the Oscar from 1966. And we also did a really great episode at Lauren Humphreys Brooks and Diana Drum and I got together to do an all Paul Newman thirst episode that was probably highly inappropriate, but a lot of fun. So yes. those are all up there in some form or coming soon. 
See, this is good stuff. Can download Ticklish Business where you get podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Sticker Radio, and Player FM to name a few. You could get exclusive pins, early episodes, and entirely new shows on our Patreon, as we mentioned, which is patreon.com slash ticklish biz and we will be back next time with a new guest a new episode and we'll talk to you then